We would like to thank our Smoky Home Compadre and Barbecue Fest sponsors, Texas Monthly, Original Blacks Barbecue, Wella Foods, Thunderbird Bars, Commerce Gallery, Poco Loco Supermercado, the Lockhart Downtown Business Association, Independence Brewing Company, and Garrison Brothers Distillery, along with our monthly sponsors, Texas Hatters, Wella Foods, Thunderbird Bars, Wendy R. Books and Gifts, Christina Valdez, Corazon Team, Realty Austin, and Viva Terlingua, the Big Bang of Texas Music Exhibit at the Whitliffe Collections at Texas State University. Viva! For the last month, we've been getting ready for Texas Monthly's Barbecue Fest, and man, is it going to be something. We're putting on our own show called the Smoky Home Compadre, a celebration of tastiness. In order to kick it off, and that's going to be on November 3rd, the first Friday, and also having our own 78644 showcase on Saturday, the next day. We're having all kinds of musicians and talent from the podcast on both shows. So what we're trying to say is we've been busy, and we can't wait for Barbecue Fest. So this here's the Barbecue Fest episode. We've interviewed the various talent who will take the stages at the festival, and we'll hear music from them as well. Barbecue brings people together, and the thing that Barbecue Fest has done in our world here is amplify just how fascinating people are, especially Lockhart people. So get your napkins and your cold beer. It's time for the Smoky Meats. I'm Stephen Collins, and this is 78644. Fascinate me. Tomar Williams embarked on his musical journey by taking center stage on the Chitlin circuit alongside his family band during the late 1980s. After spending several decades as a music producer and a supporting musician, Tomar made a decision in 2015 to return to his roots as a lead performer. It was during this time that he crossed paths with a local instrumental group known as the FCs, leading to the birth of the ensemble known as Tomar and the FCs. Their music has taken them on extensive tours across the nation, and they've graced the stages of renowned festivals such as the Austin City Limits Festival, Old Settlers Music Festival, South by Southwest, and notably, in 2022, Bonnaroo. In a momentous achievement at the 2023 Austin Music Awards, the band secured title of Best R&B Act and Tomar was rightfully celebrated as the best male vocalist. Tomar came in, and we got a chance to talk, and hear a new song as well. I come from a family band, um, six brothers and sisters, and uh, but my mom and dad had seven children, but six out of seven became musicians. And um, early on, my dad, you know, this is back in the, hmm, like 1980, he went out to a pawn shop and bought a bunch of instruments, and... And um, wanted to make sure that he wasn't going to spend a bunch of money on just <laughs> instruments and we weren't interested. So he had four sons and we all gravitated to the, to the instruments and started teaching ourselves how to play, you know, everything that was in the garage. And um, so in turn, it actually kind of ended up us being able to play everything in the garage and drums. And so we started doing that. We started playing jazz and then we went from jazz to R&B, soul, or funk, you want to say. So I switched from drums to bass guitar, and I was singing lead. Fast forward, man, around about 1985, we moved here to the Austin area and um, um, started playing Sixth Street, man. And in 1985, Sixth Street was like crazy. It was like, it was on fire. And um, 
you know, the cool thing about it is that you can actually play five nights a week and make a great living as a full-time musician. And I think I was like 15 or 16 at that time. Where, where it's at today, it's completely, totally different, man. And um, so the cool thing, the respect of Sixth Street was there. We had a lot of original music. We started recording out of this place, out of San Marcos, Texas, uh, Fire Station Studios. And Was um, Bobby the engineer in there? I think it was Bobby. Yeah, he was Bobby. a great engineer. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was owned by Lucky Tomlin. And, um, and I went to high school with his daughter, Tiffany Tomlin. And how that happened, she was like, hey, tomorrow, if you play for my graduation party at my house, you know, maybe my dad might come out and check you guys, you know, check you guys out and might give you a chance to record in his new studio. We were like, yeah, right. <laughs> that ain't going to happen. And um, sure enough, man, we were out there jamming, man. My dad was with us. And um, all of a sudden, Lucky Tomlin comes out with a little glass. He had a little bourbon in there. And he sat down on the front porch, I mean, on the back porch and was checking us out. And so once we finished, his daughter walks over and she said, my dad is listening to you guys. Oh, cool, cool, cool. So he brought us into his house. He was like, hey, fellas, uh, you know, I'm, I'm liking what I'm hearing. He said, uh, I, have a, I have an idea. Why don't you guys come to the studio Monday and, uh, and put some tracks down? We were like freaked out, man. <laughs> so that's how it started. That was our very first time being in a real studio, man. It was crazy. So we were so excited. We did a, quite a few recordings in there, man. And uh, so we got a chance to learn the authenticity of what it took to record an album from scratch, you know. And when you sung your backups, you had to do every single pass. You wasn't no cutting and pasting and all that. Nah, you had to sing it. So, yeah, man, it gave us a really good chance to understand what recording was all about. And we grew up really fast. So fast forward around about the 90s, we did some cover bands and stuff, my brothers and I. And we decided to, you know, kind of dip and dap into hip hop because, you know, my generation invented hip hop, you know. So I'm always loving hip hop. So we started producing some hip hop tracks and out of Houston working with some artists. And my brother, Sali Williams, he was actually um, working with this artist. Uh, it was called Big Mo. This guy's named Big Mo. He's passed away. But the, the nickname, they would call him the Bar Baby. But he was huge in Houston, Texas, and scored our very first Billboard chart hit, uh, The Bar Baby. And it blew up. And it was, like, huge. It was, like, his anthem. And that was, like, 98, 99. And, and then we started working with more of his artist that was on, it was called Rec Shop Records and um, D-Rec Dixon. And we started working on his album that he was putting out with all his artists that were signed to his label. And then Big Mo signed with Capitol Records and we did his breakout hit called Purple Stuff that just went crazy. And that was around about 2000, 2000. I guess it was this kid that was coming up in the ranks by the name of Mike Jones. <laughs> and and um, he was sort of like the under, you know, sort of like the underground kid, but he had all this passion, man. And he kept saying his name over and over. Mike Jones, Mike Jones. Like, who is this guy keeps saying his name over and over, man? So so basically, man, we, um, my brother Sali um, connected with those cats. And then I got a, my brother and I, A-Shack, we got a call from um, T. Ferris from Swisher House and they needed some tracks. And for, I guess, this upcoming project. And so we met T. Ferris outside of Houston, Texas. And there was this CD that we had a bunch of tracks on that we produced. And just crazy enough, man, it was this one track on there that was 
we, we had produced it for an artist that was on our label here in Austin, Texas, but he would never write to it. He would never write to it. When he do a show, he'd do like a freestyle to it, you know, like, you know, he would rap to it and do a freestyle. His name was Swift. I don't know he's going to kick my butt for talking about this, but, uh, but basically this, this beat was on that CD. So we got a call back and it was like, oh man, we want this track, that track, this track, that track, that Swisher house. Well, that one particular track that they picked, and it's like an anthem, and in fact, uh, Spotify just voted like number seven of all time hip hop. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. <laughs> they just put that out like a month ago, and um, it made number seven of all time hip hop songs ever, and it's still tipping. Tipping on four folds, wrapped in four folds, you know, and so Slim Thug, Paul Wall, and Mike Jones, made history <laughs> that's fantastic so that song started it all right there man i mean it was like crazy and then paul wall we worked with paul wall we did sitting sideways bumby draped up and dripped out pimp c pouring up we were working with so many artists out of houston and then we started branching out working with other artists then we got signed to universal in 2005 and that's when the floodgates opened up, man. You know, I'm talking about Jay-Z, Beyonce. Everybody wanted to work with us. M.I.A., we did some songs with M.I.A. One day we were in a studio session and we got a call from our man over at Universal, Manny Edwards. He was like, hey, man, I got, I finished your career on online and she wants to rap with you guys about something. I'm like, you talking about Tupac's mom? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, you know, brought her in and, She's like, hey, uh, I'm just admiring what you guys do as producers. And uh, hey, you know, I was wondering if you guys would be willing to work on my son's new project that I'm putting together for him. And we were like, what? <laughs> Heck yeah. <laughs> yeah. You ain't got to ask. You just call and say, hey, show up. You know, so it was cool, man, because um, and she was really sweet, man. And um, the late Afina Shakur, she was like, instead of you guys flying all the way here to uh, Los Angeles, I want you guys to be comfortable in your in your own setting. So she said, I will fly my crew down there. So we had a studio here in Austin, and we had a record store, a vintage record store in Luling, Texas. It was called Carnival Records. So the name of our production company was Carnival Beats. So we had a Carnival Records store in Luling, Texas, of all places. Yeah. But it was really cool, man, because you had like all these vintage records. I mean, we sold any and everything, you know, vinyl. And that was your record store? It was my brother, Sali. And oh, well, it, was wow. our, it was our family record store. My dad, we all worked it. And um, so it was, it was our record store, family owned. We were like real close to the cafe and the donut shop. Okay. And um, so what, <laughs> what happened, when we got to the studio, word got out, I'm not sure some of our artists said that the Tupac people are coming down and people were all hanging out in the parking lot before we even started the session. I'm like, oh man, this is going to be crazy. We decided not to record in Austin because there was just so much going on. There's like a lot of people just hanging out and we like, you know what, let's, let's, let's move the session to Luland. So we came all the way to Luland. We had a studio in the back of the store, of the record store. And Man, it, it was magic. It was magic, man. And so when the engineer plugs in the hard, the hard drive and he starts playing all these acapellas from Tupac, we listened to like about 200 songs, man. And I'm not joking, man. All you heard was just Tupac breathing on the microphone, just, and he just coming, and he just, 
and be like, man, this is so crazy. You yeah. know, it's like he was in the room with right. this man. It's, yeah, I get goosebumps talking about it. But um, we ultimately worked on that album. It's called Pox Life. And um, we did track number five. So it's called What's Next. But yeah, but moving forward, man, um, kind of wanted to get back into the music, actually playing music, performing and singing again, because, you know, you're doing hip hop, man. You're in the studio 15, 12 hours and, you know, being married and have kids, man. And, uh, yeah, that just drove the wife crazy, man. It put a strain on my marriage. And, you know, it's just it's just really weird because the whole hip hop world is completely different from the R&B or funk or even you know, rock world. It's like two different entities. I'm not making this up. I've been there. I've, it's like a certain, yeah, atmosphere that you have to just say, okay, this is what this is, you know. I was working with this one artist, um, Chingy, um, um, from St. Louis. He had a hit record out uh, right there. Something, something, something right there, whatever I can't recall. The, but I was working with him. He brought his whole entourage. We were in, on, off, off on Hollywood Boulevard. Really nice studio, man. And I made it there like two hours before he got there because I wanted to write some stuff before he got there. And um, when he got there, he came with an entourage of like 20 people. I mean, it was like all these women and just dudes just coming in. And it was like a party. I'm like, this is crazy, man. Like, <laughs> So it's like two different worlds, man. I'm like, yeah, man, this is, this is crazy. So I mean, I'm not taking anything from it. That If that's the culture of how it happens back then then that's cool you know but i don't think it's going on like that today i think i think times has changed um well record budgets have changed yeah record sure. budgets yeah big time man so basically man just kind of started playing keys my brother solly uh williams you know he basically uh, met this young lady by the name of latasha lee and they started a uh, a group called Latasha Lee and the Black Ties. He had asked me, hey, man, you want to come in and be the music director for this band? And, man, he wrote some really good stuff. They have some really, even to this day, the stuff is ama it's amazing, man. And um, they're no longer together anymore, but they're not working together anymore. But the thing is, the music is still there. So I was the music director playing keys, and we started touring around the United States, and we were selling our shows big time. We went to Vegas the first time we sold out. First time we went to Vegas, it was like crazy. It is. And so uh, she has this sort of like this soul, Aretha Franklin, young Aretha Franklin, Etta James soul about herself. I mean, amazing vocals, man. And my brother Sali sort of writes that old feeling. And so it took it there. So it made it, believe, made it believable. So while I was playing that, I noticed my wife kept asking me, she said, when are you going to do you? When are you going to get back out there and do you? And I'm like, nah, it's not it's not time yet. It's not time. And she said, when is it going to be time? I said, I wouldn't know when it's time. So I was like one time we did a show and um, I just realized, you know what? And I think I was with them from 2012 to like 2014. Okay. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? Two years. It's, it's time for me to do something. So I you know, it was the horn player named Nick, uh, one of the founders of Tomar and the FCs, was playing horns in Latasha Lee and the Black Ties. So one rehearsal, Sali and Latasha, they were running late. So we were just in a rehearsal, just jamming out. And I grabbed the microphone and I was sitting on the keys and I just started just welling. I just started singing a bunch of stuff. 
Nicholas, the horn player, was looking at me like, whoa, man, I didn't know you sing. I just thought you did backup. I just thought you sung backup, man. Like, oh, man, I sing a note or two every once in a while, man. And, and so after we finished uh, rehearsing that night, uh, he, he approached me. He was like, Tomar, he said, hey, man, I have this group called, well, I'm not sure what the name, but I'm not going to say the name, but that's not the important thing. But, hey, man, we do like soul funk music, like soul music. And we're looking for a lead singer, man. But hey, if you want to come by and sing a few tunes, man, doing rehearsal, man, we were rehearsing such and such day at such and such place. And and if you have time, I said, yeah, man, send me the tunes, man. So he sent me like six tunes. And I thought he was asking me to play keys and sing. So when I came to rehearsal, I brought my Fender Rose and <laughs> I had learned all the learned all the songs and singing the songs as well, playing and singing. So we got there. We were at the uh Old Torf, uh music lab. Yeah. And um so we walk in, I met the rest of the guys, man, met Paul, I met uh Andy, who else was in? I met Mitch, the bass player, and there was no keyboard player. So I'm like, okay. I was like, this is what I'm gonna do. Well, I did not know that the keyboard player at that time in our band He's one of the founding members as well. He didn't think that it was, a, 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 he thought it was a waste of time because I guess what had happened, what was happening, they were in, they were like introducing singers to the band and they wouldn't work out. So he's like, man, this is like another one of those things that's not going to work out. So I'm not going to show up and waste my time. So I came and, man, and we started jamming and going over the records. And I noticed everyone in the room was looking at me like, I'm like, man, let's get it. Let's go. Let's get it. <laughs> so we were jamming, man, and and I was having a great time. And I noticed once we finished <laughs> the rehearsal. And this never, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, it's, I can see this happen. I, I'm, I'm going to tell you, Stephen, I'm, this has never happened. I've been in the studio. I've been in, what, uh, Music Lab many times. Yeah. With many bands. And I got up, started loading stuff out, and we opened the door. And there was a bunch of people standing in front of our room, just a bunch of other musicians standing there. And we opened the door. I'm like, hey, what's up? They were like, hey, man, that was you guys in there? I'm like, <laughs> like yeah. I like, think oh. so. They were like, holy crap. <laughs> we thought that was a recording, man. We're like, no, no. That was you, that was you guys? You, that was, wow, that was great. We were like, whoa. And I looked at the cats, man. I'm like, man, I think we got some yeah. here, fellas. Call me on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, I was like, I think we got it. So I went home. I told my wife. I said, baby. I think we got some here, man. And so that was the beginning of Tomar and FCs. I love that. That's great. It was a good beginning. Yeah, it was great. Beginning. You had an immediate audience. <laughs> it's like out of one of those movies where they're like, man, that guy's in there playing that by himself. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's out the door. And I, you can't make that up, man. I was no, like, that's real. <laughs> and there were musicians. Like, musicians don't normally do that, especially in Austin. You just walk right by and don't even go. Uh, rats, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, but it was really cool. I love confirmation. That. It was. Absolutely. And now we're, we're lucky enough to bring you down to, to be a part of the Texas Monthly Barbecue Festival. Yes, sir. Which is the biggest festival that we have here in town. You're having parents from Luling. You've come come and gone through town a lot, you know. Oh, yeah. And, and notice how how crazy it is to watch it grow. It's crazy, man. I mean, my very first serious girlfriend in high school. <laughs> was right, born right here in Lockhart, Texas. And um, so I used to spend a lot of time <laughs> in the 80s here in Lockhart, man. It looks completely different. It's like a totally different town. Yeah. Super dope, man. Yeah. 
I'm yeah. hoping we that after barbecue fest, you guys come down and play some more, man. Man, we we played the uh, what's it the 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 nights at the courthouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the courthouse nights. Courthouse night, man, that was amazing. That's fun. Yeah, that I love that so show. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Adrian Casada and his wife, you know, came out. Celeste, they were hanging out with us, man. It was a great, great night, man. Yeah, yeah. So we had a great time that night. So, it's a fun time. Well, I really appreciate you taking time to come in. And, oh man, Stephen, thanks for having me. And just me, tell the story and. And uh, from your point of view, and then just hear how the band got together. Um, can you set up the, 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 the single for us? Because I know we didn't get back to Let's get back to that right quick. Yeah, you, yeah. You recorded the single in 2000 and then the middle of the pandemic. And then I guess it's a re-release is what you're saying? Yeah, what happened, we, uh, we signed with the record label out of Houston, Texas, uh, called Splice Records, Sean Brenham. And um, we decided to record this album called Rise Above. So the title track, the title track, Rise Above, was on that album. Basically, we we had our album release February the first, twenty twenty, and we were planning on just pushing it, touring, and all that good stuff. And no more than about a month later, the whole world shut down. Mm-hmm. So we never got it. Like pretty much everyone, you know, that dropped something around about that time, you couldn't do it. You had to stop. So we didn't invest any money into like videos because we couldn't even be around one another during that time so we just shot a video to the single rise above about a month ago in luling texas on we my mom and dad stay on like about 30 acres and we shot it at, right there on, on the land and worked with a really cool cat named kevin chan and uh, quentin arespi and um, he's with a band called um, The Past Lives, Quentin and The Past Lives, amazing band out of Austin. Y'all need to check them out. And so we got it edited already. I think it's ready to be released. So I, we might be releasing it real soon in the next probably three weeks, four weeks. Okay. So Rise Above, you know, it's talking about what we're going through right now. <laughs> right, you know, it's it's not it's not changing. It's probably getting worse. I don't know what, where we're heading right now, but you know, just have fun and write music and and make love, y'all. I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. It's the best thing we can do. <laughs> the best thing we can do. <laughs> but thanks so much, Tamar. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for having me, man.
time ago You could have continued it so you had to let it flow Now all of a sudden you frown at all the things I like I feel it coming on when you wanna start a vibe I should have known better but you were all about But deep in my heart I had no sense of doubt I'm saying I fell in love with your innocence Don't know what happened to you ever since So mesmerized with your lady ways Give anything to get back to days Texas Monthly Stage during Barbecue Fest on Saturday, November 4th at 6 p.m. Rattlesnake Milk is a tight-knit quartet of lifelong friends that came together in the vast expanse of the Texas Panhandle. The genesis of the band can be traced back to those sun-soaked days on a cotton farm in Olton, Texas, where he worked in the fields for a dear family and discovered their shared passion for songwriting. With just one handful of rough demos... Sean Lou Lewis had taken on the role of the one-man band, playing all the instruments himself. Upon sharing these fledgling compositions with some of his buddies in Lubbock, the collective decision was made to bring these songs to life on stage. And it was at that moment that Rattlesnake Milk was officially born. We got a chance to sit down with Sean to talk about his music and Rattlesnake Milk and his move to Lockhart. For years, me and a bunch of my friends, we were in a bunch of bands in Lubbock over the years, punk and noise, all sorts of just weird stuff. Going to shows, we started listening to this band, Thrift Store Cowboys, who were local legends in town, and ended up being really good friends with them. At the same time, we were doing a bunch of house shows, supporting touring bands coming into town. Like, got really into like OCs, Ty Seagal, that cool DIY stuff. It was like the age of the DIY. And then me and Andrew, um, we moved to New York, toured up there with our band La Panza, which is super noisy, weird, experimental music, and stayed there for eight months. Could never get a job, just ate ramen noodles, drank a bunch of beers, and had to come back to Texas. And when we did that, I called my buddy I grew up with. We've been best friends since second grade. His name's Eric Spain. And he started farming for his grandpa, so I started working for him. And we were just farming cotton and corn sorghum stuff like that out there and i wrote like a just solo album at the time i was just come staying with my parents 
had my little laptop up recording just like weird rockabilly music. And the tractor all I could get was 1590 KDAV, which was like a oldies station back in the day. Um, like Buddy Holly used to play there live from the roller rink. It's like a really historical, awesome old oldies channel. It was really inspiring to me. So I got really into like rockabilly, the oldies, you know, the golden gems and like some weird spooky stuff from that area. So I recorded these demos and then brought them back to Lubbock, went out drinking. After the night drinking, we ended up at Daniel's house from thrift store and I showed my buddies the songs and then they were just like, dude, let, let's turn this into a band. So a couple of my friends started playing with me and that's how it started. I basically. love that Daniel and the thrift store guys were involved. I, I've known those guys for a long time. Oh yeah. Oh nice yeah. dude. Yeah. Yeah. I mean back in the late nineties, you know, and that's dude, when I, yeah, they've been at it forever, man. Absolutely. And is Cole still down in Marfa making boots and all that? Yeah, he is. Yeah. He's really good at that too. Yeah. It's but, pretty crazy. It's crazy thinking back about those days. Like Amanda Shires was hanging out. Yeah, she was played fiddle for him, yeah, yeah for years. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Good times, man. Yeah, so historically, I wasn't too much into country music or Western music until I started listening to the thrift store. Uh, obviously, you grow up in Plainview, Texas, you're going to two-step at your high school dances. And I don't know, it just never really resonated with me until I saw the way that thrift store was doing it. And it was like this really powerful, deserty, Western, kind of surfy, Neil Morricone sound. I was like, no, this is something that resonates with me. And yeah. From there, it's... I, I give them a lot of credit for the music that we make. That's cool. Yeah, I, you know, because I remember Daniel and I were trying to make cinematic style of music. That's what I was trying to do in a little different way. Right. I think I used more tremolo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah. it's definitely the Ennio Morricone vibe. For sure. And I think that's fascinating because you, you, we were talking earlier before we started recording that you're into filmmaking or wanting to do some movie work, right? Like, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I have four movie ideas I want to do. I, ch I actually applied to go to film school, was rejected, and then never applied again. But it's something that's like always a dream of mine and eventually yeah. I want to do. Oh, well, yeah, I hope you do because people that – I felt the same way about doing music where, like, I, you could make a film with a song, you know? Exactly, yeah. I have been able to scratch that itch with the last record we did, Chicken Fried Snake. Every song is basically, in my head, a movie. Like, it's a small movie. All The whole record, all the characters are inter interconnected. That's and great. I kept it secret for a while, but people online started noticing and asking questions, and I think on Reddit maybe they started talking about it. But, yeah, like, they're all interconnected people. It's In my head, Chicken Fried Snake's one big movie. I love that. I yeah. love that it's kind of like a book, too, you know, where a film where you get the characters interplay. Exactly, yeah. Wow, that's yeah. cool. Well, you heard it from you heard it here. It's that's really what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you thought it was happening, it's happening. It happened. So you've been on the road a lot and going over to to the Scandinavia and across the U.S. Yeah. How was your recent run? Just Sweden and Norway, right? Sweden, Norway. We did Copenhagen too. Yeah. Sure. Okay. First of all, it was amazing. But second of all, it was kind of hilarious because we're. None of us had been out of the United States before, and we just land in this wild place. You don't know what's going on. You can't read any signs. <laughs> the grocery stores are like an amusement park. Yeah. Like, we were just all like little kids, and you show up, Rootsy Music helped us out. You show up, they have a van with all your gear ready, so yeah, it, it allowed us to not really have to stress too much and just hang out, and everybody in Scandinavia is super respectful for music, so they don't talk when you're playing. 
And it's hard to like equivalent that in Texas when you're playing at, you know, Sagebrush or Sam's Town Point. And, you know, everybody's having fun hollering, hooting, and that's how it makes you feel like you're being rewarded. But there, it's the opposite. It's very disrespectful to talk while a band's playing. So that was weird at first, but five days in, five, six days in, it's like, this is the best. Because <laughs> <laughs> they take it so so seriously, yeah, too, yeah. They, which isn't a good thing. It's not like they're, they're, they're really appreciated. And I, yeah. I think that's... Yeah, they're like hanging on your every word and note. And yes. When you walk on stage, everybody applauds. And yes. They, it's like rude not to encore. So you just walk out of there feeling like, you know, Marky Mark. Or <laughs> <laughs> so. I, I think that's great. And I'm glad you had that experience. Um yeah, I mentioned it before, but everybody knew you where, when we went there, and they all asked me if I knew you, so <laughs> <laughs> you're a legend over there. I, I, it's like the one place people know me, you know, <laughs> except Lockhart. <laughs> yeah. I have to go back to Sweden and say hi to everybody. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Did you eat those big round crackers? We ate, yes, and we ate, I remember, uh, did you play Avista the, the, with the tent? Mm-mm, No. Leif's place, oh man, he he's the place that had like the horse meat sausage, you know. Oh, interesting. And we didn't know how to feel about that, but it was really tasty, you know. So we were kind of like, well, went in Rome a little bit. <laughs> I'd try it. It was good, yeah. The, but yes, all the strange, the cracker thing, yeah. Yeah, I got obsessed with those crackers. And we stayed at this little Airbnb in Bjorn's hometown. I think it's Borang. Yeah, that's or right. Borlang or something. Yeah. And there was like a little sewed circle that they hang on the wall just for that big circle cracker thing. And then I smuggled some back in my backpack. I'm obsessed with those big crackers. I don't know. I still don't know what they're called. I, I think I've been told probably 10 times. But maybe. Yeah, I know there's so many consonants that you can't really pronounce it if you're from Texas. So I just kind of say the big brown cracker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. That was the, that's, wasn't the first European tour for Rattlesnake Milker, was it? Right? Yeah, it was. It yeah, was, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you'll go back, but you've done a lot of work here in the U.S. too, right? Yeah, we play we play a lot around Texas, Arkansas, New Mexico, Oklahoma. Kind of keep it tight because just easier to go out on some four, three, four, five day runs. But you, back in the day, we used to go, you know, up to New York or up to L.A. or Seattle or stuff. But yeah, it's harder. To it's do harder that. when you get older. And yeah, and when fuel's like six bucks in California, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dude. You said. That you had been working on, the band has been working on two albums. Actually, we're kind of working on three almost at the same time, which sounds insane. But, you know, we recorded Chicken Fried Snake almost two years ago. It's only been out for a year, but we actually had all the tracks done two years ago. Same thing with our last record. So we're just horrible about, like, once we record them, we never finish it. Yeah, and I know. We as know. you probably know, that can take forever sometimes. Yeah, it shouldn't, but it does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, so we're working on one right now. I have all the demos done. It's like a bunch of my old solo songs that I wrote, kind of around the time where I was farming, and they're all like really sad, slow waltzes and townsy vibes, you know. I was going to put them out myself, and then it never felt right, so I talked to the guys, and I was like, hey, maybe we should just do these, so they were on board, so I think that's going to be one we put out next year. Also, we've been writing a bunch of weird kind of psychedelic J.J. Kell grunge, I guess. I oh, cool. It's like a weird kind of mix of a bunch of genres that were just kind of came out of nowhere. So we're going to get that one. And then also 
we're also working on a screw and chop record, and that's breaking news. What is that? Uh, so it's like uh, DJ Screw. He's a, a DJ from Houston where he like slowed down R&B tracks. Okay. You'd play one on each turntable and crossfade in between the two, but one's a little he- ahead of the other, so yeah. it creates that. Oh, that's cool. I can't wait to hear that. Yeah. It's almost like a Dilla kind of thing, but like the phasey. Exactly. I'm, yeah, Simple we're all big thing. like hip-hop and yeah, Dilla, all that stuff. Our problem is we write too many songs and we can't re- capture them, I think. So we in the jam room and here in Lockhart, we have a I have a double glass door pane. And it's like divided into probably like 20 different little sub windows. And each window, it's like a record. And that door's filling up. So we, we're just stacking up songs right now. Oh, man. But, I mean, it's hard. You know, we all have to work. And it's hard to... We've been getting some good shows coming down the line, which is super cool. Yeah. But it's hard to carve out time to give those songs like the uh, energy or the attention they need, I guess. Yeah. So do you usually... Do you work recording yourself or do you work with a producer or how do you usually do it yeah, so this, last, time? this last record we recorded at my house then we bounced the tracks to danny and good danny's yeah here in town and he ran it through his awesome outboard gear and then sent them back to us and we finished up the mix cool yeah That's and that was the process the record before last he did it all yeah so i think so, it's just like finding that in between we, we're just music and tone nerds, so we like just sitting around and messing around and seeing what we can come up with. And that's what's really special about this last record. It gave us a chance to just like completely full on nerd out about what we like to hear. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just tonally like, yeah. too, right? With all the tones of going to tape and all that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I, I got a setup not as good as this one over here. <laughs> <laughs> But well, uh, thanks, yeah. Yeah, I got it like a tape machine and stuff now. Actually just got some Yamaha PM1000 racks uh, with the Neve mods. Yeah, those so, are great. Yeah. I mean, and nowadays it, you can, like, I'm a Frankenstein of analog and digital stuff now, but it's like yeah, the electronic gear is pretty amazing now. You know, yeah, it the, really it, is. I'm like, wow, you know, you could really, if you know your signal flow, you can you can do pretty great with it. There was a time where you really needed the real gear, you know, and you could tell the difference day day and night. Yeah. Now it's like you can A B ten sixty six and you'll say, put it on the mod, you know, or, I mean on the VST, and you're like, man, I, I can't really, <laughs> I can't. Maybe there's a little bit of fidelity difference, you know. I mean, some, maybe other engineers might disagree, but I, it's getting really close. Yeah, I'm a big fan of those Arteria packs for the keyboards. Like you can. Oh, you know, two hundred dollars, you get all the best synthesizers. All of them, yeah, I know. And that, think about that. Like back when we started doing, back like in the old days, yeah, it, you couldn't. It would take you thirty thousand dollars to yeah. amass that kind of arsenal at yeah. your fingertips. Yeah, a CS eighty is like fifty thousand dollars or something. I know for one keyboard. And that's how I was like when some of it was coming out. I didn't trust it, but then when I start to work with it, I'm like, man, this is absolutely yeah. fantastic to have this. Yeah, I've been told like uh, you know a lot of big film score projects and stuff. Most like producers get the files and it's all VST stuff. Absolutely, nowadays. the East yeah. West stuff or whatever whatever Hans Zimmer uses, and then they yeah yeah they score that way. Then they play that, and the orchestra plays on top of it, right? And it thickens it, so you oh, got yeah. this, you know. Yeah. And sometimes you can tell that it, sometimes it's just the orchestra, and sometimes it's just the computer, but right. A lot, a lot of things that I've heard recently, they are stacking it. And it's pretty cool. 
it's like a really big sound. You right. Know? Yeah. Be an 88 so piece good. orchestra, what are you going to do? I'm obsessed with Hans Zimmer, actually. Yeah, he's me too. I think he's fascinating. <laughs> I wanted to not like him for some weird reason, but his latest stuff, like the Blade Runner 2049 soundtrack and all that weird, like, kind of sci fi. But also, like you said, natural tone stuff like the Dune soundtrack. He's just, it's he's just on so another cool. level. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to show you some stuff that yeah, they dude. make that you That'd can do. Awesome. It's amazing what you can do. I know some of the, one of the shows coming up is, of course, the Barbecue Fest, which yeah. we were fortunate enough to book you guys on. Yeah, and, um, yes. We're so stoked about that. Appreciate it. Oh, yeah. It's going to be a lot of fun. A lot of, we wanted to showcase Lockhart talent. And um, people that are the, uh, the amazing artists that are living here in both music and performance. And so um, we appreciate you doing it. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, we're super stoked. It's pretty awesome, too, that uh, RF Shannon's playing, which is one of my all-time favorite bands, not even like Texas or Lockhart or anything. In general, I was like the biggest RF Shannon fan ever. <laughs> and I'm still pretty much obsessed with them all the time. He actually lives uh, on my property. Like we, he lives in the back house of the house that I'm living at. So, Shane. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's and so cool. Yeah. I try not to nerd out every day when I see him. I'm like, oh, <laughs> like man, I listen to you, Shane. Yeah, he stop pointing at me, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it probably gets on his nerves and telling him. No, I love that you. That that's so cool that you get a chance to. You know, to be close to the people that inspire our work, you know? Yeah, for sure. It is really great to have you guys, to have RF Shannon here in town. And like, it, it kind of blows my mind because yeah, 10 years ago, I came out here in 2007. And, you know, I came out because I I could live close to Austin, but I right. could, yeah. you know, have my recording set up and tour out of here and not have the overhead problem. Now it's like I don't even have to go into Austin. It's like it's just great. Yeah. Uh, right here, you know. Yeah, it's great. Very inspiring telenovela. They put out the new record. Yeah, and it's so great. good. Like you know, it just blows my mind. And you just run into these people, you know, going to Loop and Lose for some pizza and <laughs> <laughs> these super talented folks out there making cool stuff. Absolutely. Well, um, do you have a song from that you'd like to set up for us? Good Die Young is a good one. It's uh, off our last record, Chicken Fried Snake. It's actually about, loosely about, a night that I hung out with Shane and his friend Johnny up in the Panhandle of Texas at one of my dad's buddy's ranches and had probably too many drinks but had a campfire and it was just a beautiful, amazing night. And also we lost a bunch of close friends who were our age and younger around the same time. So it's kind of like a mix between, you know, a beautiful night in process and death of you know people that you really care about so i think that's probably a good one to to play yeah for people who might not have heard us it's a little slower you know historically we have some faster songs but it's slow and kind of deserty so i think yeah hopefully you enjoy Sands, thunderstorms, pour heavy rains. 
like sin Blowing just like the dirt The moon held our lover's blossom in the night I'm Crying when the memories come falling in my mind A thousand images of loneliness and pain Falling down like tears Cut you down in a wound left wide open, spill like rain on hollow ground. The same hand that held you, Lord, it's the same hand that bared you low. Don't you cry no more.
Austin Music Love is putting out a local music discovery letter. They will send out the new songs that are released daily by local artists in the Central Texas area, including Lockhart. Plus, you can personalize your newsletter by genre. Over 1,500 local artists are signed up to have their music distributed through the newsletter, and there are about 50 new releases per week across all genres. Some of the Lockhart artists included are Augustin Ramirez, Melissa Engelman, Telenovela, R.F. Shannon, Richard Watson, and Parker Chapin. Find out more at austinmusiclove.com. Tribute to the Last Waltz is coming back to Lockhart, Texas on Sunday, November 26th. The show will be held at Luna Gardens and will start with a chef-prepared VIP dinner by Roaming Fire. Come and enjoy an amazing meal prepared over an open fire with the artists and a showing of local music videos by Susamigas Production Agency as well as a front row seat to the concert. Dinner seats are limited, and sales close November 10th. There are also general admission tickets available now at a discount. This amazing event is brought to you by Deep Eddy Vodka, Mill Scale Metalworks and Meshed Up Productions. Visit lastwaltz.show for tickets and more info. season. <laughs> Let us begin with a very special original story by our own Sarah Barr of Lockhart Arts and Crafts. April 19th, 11.42pm. Today's been a weird day, and I don't mean weird like I wore my shirt backwards or they were out of my favorite coffee at the coffee shop. I mean like weird, weird. It all started out pretty normal, and it went downhill fast. I started keeping this journal because I thought I'd look back on it in 20 years or so and reminisce. Sometimes I think that's the only thing humans are really good at, reminiscing. We're always longing for a simpler time or missing old friendships, jobs, relationships, or days when we didn't have anything to do or any responsibilities. We could use our time to make our current lives like the memories we so miss, but instead we just keep trudging on day by day, complaining about everything that's wrong. And the ironic thing is that in the future, these are going to be the days we miss. It's hilarious, really. Anyway, I'm getting distracted. I woke up early this morning, around 7, and got dressed in what I call my fall uniform. Black jeans, white tank top, and some kind of collared shirt with the sleeves rolled up. I never thought I'd be this kind of person, but it's so much easier when you don't have to think about what to wear. My closet has been slowly getting filled with more and more pairs of black jeans and white tank tops. The dresses are long gone in a box to goodwill. I'm sure one day I'll reminisce about the days I used to wear dresses. Crap, I'm getting distracted again. So I put on my uniform, grabbed my bike, and headed to the coffee shop to fuel up before work. 
I had a long shift today, 14 hours of sorting, stocking, pricing, and chatting up customers when Sandra was too busy. It was going to be exhausting, and I was trying my best to brace myself. You don't get to Florida by not working the long shift. Everyone still gives me hell about wanting to move to Florida. It's the same old jabs over and over again. What, are you going to retire? Watch out for the bath salts. People are so unoriginal. The whole way to the coffee shop, it was deserted on the streets. Wallace is a small town, so I usually see at least somebody I know on the way in from the farm, but not today. They must have all been sleeping it off from karaoke at the Silver Corner last night. Usually Mark ends up drinking so much he leads a Disney sing-along, and all of the big burly dudes end up singing along too. Begrudgingly at first, and then with real gusto. It's one of the best things that happens in town. You'd think Mark and the gang would get cut off before it could happen, but they don't actually cut people off at the corner, or anywhere else in town, really. People just give each other rides or walk or sleep it off on the owner's couch. When I got to the coffee shop, I started to get worried. It was closed, and it's never closed. I mean, never. Marge runs it like a military ship, seven days a week, 364 days a year. The one day she takes off is July 12th, the anniversary of her husband's death. We all understand, and we get our coffee elsewhere on that day. Sorry, I'm getting distracted again. I'm so bad at journaling, but Celine told me that it really helped her, so I'm trying to stick with it. It's not like this is ever going to be published or anything. Anyway, the coffee shop. I pushed on the door, which was open, which was even weirder. There was nobody inside. Nothing was turned on. It was deserted. I feel kind of bad about this now, but I did end up making myself a coffee. I just really needed it, and I left money on the counter and cleaned up after myself, so it wasn't all that bad. I'm sure Marge will understand. So I left the coffee shop, and I rode to the boutique, and this is where I really started to freak out. There was no one anywhere, and I mean no one. Even the post office was closed. And of course, when I got to the shop, no one. I sat down outside, and I started calling everyone I knew. No answers, not a single one. And at that point, I started wondering if everyone had been raptured or something and I was such a bad person that I was literally the only one other one left behind. That couldn't be true, though, because if I was left behind, then I know Hank and Sherry would have been left behind, too. I did the only thing I knew to do, which was to ride around and yell at the top of my lungs, Can anybody hear me? Is anyone else left behind? And at some point, I got winded from riding and yelling, so... I just rode around in circles, starting at the center of town and working my way out to the city limits. It seemed crazy, but it's not that far, and apparently I didn't have to work today, so what else did I have to do? On my third time starting from the center of the universe marker and working my way out, I saw something new. It was just a doorway, but I'd somehow never seen it before, like it had popped up overnight. There was no door, just a series of boards fastened over the front. When I parked my bike and got close, something extra weird happened. I got really cold all over, like it was the middle of January, and I started hearing things. And I couldn't really tell at that point if they were real or if they were just in my head. Maybe it was the voices of everyone who got raptured? I tried to get closer to the door, but the whispering got more and more. Not louder, really, just more. More conversations, more voices. I could pick out some of them, like Randall talking to Marge about donuts and Amanda talking to anyone who would listen about that one time she met Rachel Ray. But some of them were darker, a little more hidden away. 
And along with the cold, I couldn't bear it for more than a minute. So I got back on my bike and hauled ass. I rode around for the entire day, going further out of town in a different direction each time. By the time it started getting dark, I was exhausted, scared, and confused, but mostly starving. I didn't feel right breaking into the grocery store for dinner, so I started pedaling back home. And let me tell you, it was a lot slower than I'd left this morning. It only takes me about 20 minutes to ride back to the farm from town, nothing to write home about normally, but today it felt like hours. I kept looking over my shoulder, feeling like something was following me, but there was never anything there. If it was God or angels or whatever, they should really know better than to try and freak people out like this. At about the halfway point, I saw something that looked like car lights in the distance. I remember shouting, oh my God, out loud. Finally, another person. Finally, I wasn't going to die alone in a town with a new ghost door and no living residence. More importantly, I wasn't the worst person in town. I could share the misery of being left behind with someone else and see what they did to still be here. That would help me figure out if I was a bad person or not. Hopefully they weren't a murderer. The headlights kept coming up the road, disappearing slightly behind a small hill, and I was pedaling as fast as my rubbery legs would let me. But when I got to the top of the hill, there was nothing there. No lights, no car, no person. And I was probably imagining this from the hunger and exhaustion, but I thought I felt the cold again, creeping up behind me as I rode with the faintest hint of a whisper. I made it home when I opened the gate and I was riding in when I looked and I saw the headlights again. I wasted no time in dumping my bike and hauling ass again back to the road. My feet would barely hold me up, but I had to get there. I had to talk to them. I ran down the side of the road towards the headlights, but just as I got there, they disappeared. I stood there hugging myself and almost crying and I never cry. It's just not who I am. I started walking back to the house. And this time, I know I wasn't imagining the cold in my back or the whispers. That stuff moved fast. I took off and sprinted for the house, leaving my bike on the gravel. So now I'm here, in my house, eating soup and writing, staring out the window, too afraid to open it. I hope my electricity stays on. Do we need people for that to happen? Or the water? Maybe things will look better in the morning. Maybe this is all the worst dream ever, but I don't think so because you can't write in dreams and I'm pretty sure the soreness in my muscles is real. I see the car headlights in the distance and just flip them off this time. There's no way I'm going back out there tonight. Or maybe tomorrow, or maybe until I run out of food. Maybe if I steal a car, I can just drive to Florida. This can't be happening outside of Wallace. I giggle a little to myself because I'm doing it right now, reminiscing. Wishing I'd had that 14-hour day of sorting, stocking, pricing, and chatting up to customers when Sandra was too busy. All Hallows by Louise Gluck Even now, this landscape is assembling. The hills darken. The oxen sleep in their blue yoke. The fields having been picked clean, the shaves bound evenly and piled at the roadside among the sea foil. As the toothed moon rises, this is the barrenness of harvester pestilence, and the wife leaning out the window with her hand extended as in payment, and the seeds distinct, gold, calling. Come here. Come here, little one. 
and the soul creeps out of the tree. Have you seen the ghost of John? Long white bones and the rest all gone. Ooh, wouldn't it be chilly with no skin on? Have you seen the ghost of John? Long white bones and the rest all gone. Have you seen the ghost of John? Long white bones and the rest all gone. Back to Barbecue Fest, local artist Shane Renfro recently sat down with us in the studio to discuss R.F. Shannon, a project that delves into the realms of country, Americana, and alt-country music. R.F. Shannon's music expertly blends traditional country elements with contemporary vibes of Americana, adding a sprinkle of indie rock, resulting in a deeply soulful and introspective sound. R.F. Shannon's songs evoke a duality of emotions. They can be mournful at times and profoundly inspiring at others. His creative wellspring draws direct inspiration from the text and landscapes that surrounds him, crafting music that mirrors the wild and breathtaking Texas environment. His unique voice and guitar playing style are instantly recognizable, marked by a rare rawness and honesty that offers a refreshing departure from the norms of modern music. Started with just me and my brother Jeff. He's the drummer still in Austin, uh, I guess about 10 years ago. And then slowly added pedal steel, Luke Dawson, and there's been a rotating cast of bass players. Austin Burge was the first one, your neighbor. <laughs> That's right. And uh, anytime someone has babies, then it's like, okay, the next person jumps in and, and plays bass. Right now, Chaz Bissett's playing bass for us. But yeah, it's um, been me and Jeff the whole time, and then I moved to LA for a couple years, and. It's always been hard to distinguish whether R.F. Shannon was a band or if it was like just a solo effort, but I'll end up often writing the songs by myself and then I like to have a band to come in and execute it, so it's kind of something in between. I'm trying now that I'm settled back in Lockhart and have been for a few years to have it be more of an actual band because I like the, the atmosphere you can capture when you record more live, mostly live. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been going about 10 years. We have a handful of albums now and more to come, hopefully. Yeah, I hope so, too. Yeah. And the, the latest one just just came out and, and on, on a digital release, and there's a vinyl release coming. Yeah, we released it May 26th digitally with Killed Scales, and we're they're being pressed as we speak, so we should have them hopefully by the end of the year, but worst case, we'll be taking pre-orders soon and they'll be out and available early next year maybe i considered not doing a vinyl release but i just i really like the tangibility of uh of having a vinyl so i, I feel like i couldn't really move on unless we actually had an artifact yeah i hear you it's like <clears throat> those types of tangibles make it feel like you've done something mm -hmm. you know, not just done something on your computer right and emailed it to somebody totally. um the sound, uh, it's you have. There's a sound with this 
with your with the whole RF Shannon thing. And then this one, and it's always been kind of desert specific, I suppose, or am I out of line when I'm saying that? I think we've always this sort of been a, a feedback loop of that. Like we've often heard people say that it reminds them of the desert or that it feels really good to listen to while driving through the desert. I think there was sort of a, a period of time or maybe five or so years ago where I was really obsessed with the desert. So I think I was leaning into that. This new album, Red Swan and Palmetto, is kind of more of a coming home. I went to Palmetto State Park, which is, you know... It's kind of crazy. It's yeah, like it's going to Costa Rica or something over Yeah, there. it's like the furthest <laughs> west, like, bioregion of, like, dwarf palmettos that grow there. Like, in that amount, I guess. Kind of like Lost Maples, you know? Yeah. Uh, just like this odd anomaly of, like, all these dwarf palmettos in this swamp. So I, I don't know, it just really captivated me and spent a lot of time there when I moved back and was working on the album. And so I kind of wanted to have it, this new album be kind of a departure from the desert vibe, but that's so vague anyways. And it always, it's usually like press will kind of latch onto one thing that's easy to talk about. So it's like desert, this or that. And that's always fine. I kind of understand how it works just to abbreviate things and get the point across. But yeah, this this one is, I'm trying to get a little swampier, if that makes sense. I don't even know what that means, though. It's always vague to me, too. I just, I, <laughs> just one image in my head, and then I just sort of uh, go off of that. It's not necessarily specifically yeah. like swamp. You know, the first song is meant to be, but the rest are just songs that I wrote that ended up on the album. Yeah. And when you, are you the kind of writer that kind of takes a look at the body of work and says, okay, this is kind of the feel of the record and writes toward it or do you have a bunch of songs and kind of filter them through yeah i typically will for some reason get the album name before this the the songs and so i'll sort of try to put it put all the songs in a bracket of of referring to it whether sonically or lyrically except rain on dust that one i didn't have a name for until it was done but inevitably there will always be a couple stray strays on the album that I didn't necessarily, like, there's some that are, like, really old songs that I'll sort of resuscitate and, and try to put it in the context of a new work. But I'll try to get a core of a handful of songs to fit the the vibe, yeah, of what I've pre-decided. I, I find it, it helps for me to work in a container, even if it's arbitrary. And it's just, like, I get a mental image when I think of Red Swan and Palmetto, and then I try to write songs that feel like it fits in that container yeah i you know there was a time was listening to uh i think it was brian Eno and and daniel and were talking about geographic music you know mm -hmm. like music that had a locality in its sound right and um and they would kind of sometimes go there to make the record or they at least you know work in that box i was fascinated by that because i think that's what you're describing a little bit it is we even considered renting a cabin in uh caddo caddo lakes uh, state park or Caddo Lake, like they have these little East Texas, yeah, yeah, these cabins in like far northeast Texas. I like it. Very over there. spooky, swampy. It's vibes. really spooky, yeah, yeah. But it was lined up, you know, with pandemic and all that, so I had to just squash all that and um, ended up doing most of it at home. But I do lean into the geographical or locality thing because a lot of the lyrics and I rely on it to ground me personally and the music because a lot of the lyrics are just sort of floating in space in a way. And I 
there's no real message, but a lot of times when I write them and then I start compiling like the liner notes and that, the lyrics and stuff, I will see them refer to each other in these unconscious ways. It's so fascinating. It takes yeah. on a you know a life of its own, and and I think the sense of place is is um, kind of the palette for all, the, all that to go down. You know, it's a common link between them. Yeah, I, that's fascinating. That's another phenomenon that's crazy. That you're you, when you write something and then you don't have you don't have a clue what it's about or you don't know how it relates and then later like yeah it could be like years later you see oh my gosh that's it's like you made a puzzle that you had no idea like it didn't <laughs> exist like yeah. you weren't trying to make the puzzle and then it's you actually ended up putting these pieces together that created something that you had no intention to create yeah it's kind of wild it's crazy it's like it's proof of the spirit world yeah man. exactly <laughs> i mean when i'm listening to to your work it's like it's a bit impressionistic which is cool you mm-hmm. know like it's like terrence malick it makes movies not so much about the narrative, but about the feeling of it, you know, and yeah, about the. That's very true. Like, I feel I feel that, you, that with your work, you know, with your music. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that. I've always kind of said it was like gesture art or impressionist is probably a better way to put it. It's just I'm sort of mildly hinting at something, and then it kind of tends to figure itself out as we go. And I just I like so many different kinds of music. I've never been comfortable being derivative. And the older I get, and I see musicians within a context of like whether a really good bluegrass player old timey or blues or whatever it is i have so much respect for that but i'm just like painting broad strokes whereas all that is is really detail you know there's such a tradition built into those and i feel kind of outside of those not intentionally it's like oh i think maybe about in 20 years i'll just be watching youtube videos and trying to learn to to play the blue, bluegrass really well or the blues really well specifically, but for now I'm just uh, happy to, you know, we all borrow. So whatever vibe I get from this or that, I just kind of try to take it without being derivative of it, you know, just yeah. kind of hinting at. It makes you feel like bluegrass or soul music feels, but it's not a soul band or a bluegrass band. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. There's too much good music. I just want to be able to kind of check off all the boxes of the feelings in one song if I can. No, I think you're doing a good job with that because there's the, you have the melody and you're you're putting a textural thing together. You got your counter melody and it's like, it's just lets people kind of step into the song a bit and it's not engaging you on a like, listen to me kind of thing. It's more right. like allow yourself to sort of be discreet when you work, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I certainly know what you mean. There's times when I'll be writing songs and I'm like, if I fully lean into the the tradition of what this sort of is beckoning, then it would take away some of the, you know, music's powerful, all kinds. So if you can kind of like not reveal the trick, I guess, of like, oh, it's a, because it's like a famous bluegrass song or whatever it is, then you can't mentally have that moment where as a listener where you're like, I like not being able to put your finger on what it is but the timeless quality of all music hopefully comes through you know yeah i do and i'm i'm curious on what when we when you say that the timeless quality i know what you're talking about but can you talk about what you mean when you talk about it only in as much as i've felt that from other music i i don't know what it is you know they're proven you know when leonard cohen talks about the minor fall, the major lift. It's like there's some, there seems to be some sort of sacred quality built into chord progressions, melodies, and, and the relationship between them. And so to me, I just try to find a relationship between chords and melody that hits me the way that other songs do. And then I have to 
filter that through like, okay, does this sound like too much like anything else? And then, you know, then you're doing other kind of work, but I feel like it's the relationality of tones and melodies and things that aren't really anyone's or any specific genres or traditions. It's, it's, uh, we're all working with the same raw material, you know? Yeah. So I feel like maybe that's the timeless quality is that there's just this amorphous mass of, uh, sound that we corral in these ways and it's tried and true that these things really work well. Yeah. And, but, but has this ever been done with this weird, uh, like tone or like a pedal still, but not playing it like country and Western pedal still, but more of like a, like a synth pad. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Just ways of like getting the same vibe of shoegaze or whatever it is, but using a completely different instrument. You're kind of like a post-impressionist, you know, it's like you're doing those soft lines and taking these tonal palettes and saying like, let's create a world to live in mm-hmm. and we know those sounds because they're familiar but we'll put them in a way that we makes them fresh right or not cliche but i i'm i'm i love that work because i feel like it is new or it is a new way to do something authentic you know right. is there a song off the album that you want to kind of showcase or talk about a little bit or set up I, I really particularly love this song, Abalone, that, that's on the new album. I love the album. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go on my, I don't know whether to do Abalone or So Down Low. I think those are my two yeah. favorites. One's on side A, one's on side B. Abalone's got that, that uh, violin lick that's so yeah, cool. It's like, almost like a tango. It's a weird song because it's built on a very sort of entrancing groove that never changes, like or barely changes. And in lieu of like a chorus, like I sort of just wanted the the violin lick that's happening to be the hook of the song and then the rest of it just to be variations and and bells and whistles along the way. So I never wrote a chorus for it. Part of me wanted to make it shorter and condense it and make it like a pop song that could be on what whatever. But with this whole album, I sort of had this, I wanted to play with using more traditional Americana instruments, but using them in ways that weren't kind of noticeable or derivative way of doing it. And Abalone, I think, is my favorite example of, of that. And it kind of harkened back to some of our earlier records where we were a lot more expansive and we would just let things go maybe even too long, you know? Yeah, yeah. But um, Abalone was kind of, to me, a way from, for us to bridge that. Because, uh, you know, Rain on Dust and Trickster Blues, the previous two albums, we condensed the songs. I made them kind of more accessible and not for any reason just because i wanted to see how i worked in that limitation you know but abalone was kind of a welcome back to letting in that spaciousness and and um just playing with sounds and panning and all kinds of weird you know ear candy stuff so that when you're staring at the stars you have this uh cool guide along with you you know so maybe abalone okay yeah (laughs) one other thing i'm curious about is like when you interpret the songs live with the band, is it is it um, a similar type of of method, or, or is it just I, a free for all? Let's reinvent it kind of thing. I sort of uh, painted myself in some corners. I'm still negotiating how we do things live because we have like a pretty solid regular four piece uh, situation now here in Lockhart with Luke Dawson on pedal steel, Chaz on bass, and me doing my thing and my brother on drums. And I want to be able to go and play anywhere with that. And a lot of the songs we can, but like with Abalone or Dublin, Texas, songs that I really leaned heavily into the the fiddle being the hook, 
it kind of you kind of can't play abalone and have it have the same effect without yeah the fiddle not that i steel could do it i guess but like yeah but it's like then you lose some of that like padding stuff that he does on the wreck and it's yeah yeah you know but that's cool too i like the idea of you know you would have maybe i play solo one night or maybe it's a four piece and then maybe we have when we do have like the full ensemble then you know you get different performances of the song i i try to keep it somewhat close to the record but the timing's always gonna be different there's always a a lot of the record is improv especially on abalone so live you'll you know we're not sitting here counting bars necessarily other than the parts when there's vocals the rest of it's just gonna be sort of a free-for-all it's cool but i'm not the type of person to want to play with a like a a track that's like gonna do the fiddle part i'd rather just yeah play it in a totally different way yeah so that's kind of where we are now is figuring out how to how to perform these songs live we've done one show may 26 in elgin and it was probably the funnest i've ever had playing a live show it was such a good turnout which surprised me i kind of wanted it to be in elgin because i thought maybe not as many people would show up and we could just kind of work out our kinks but everybody <laughs> shows up. packed out and it was awesome. So it was, that was the first time to sort of baptize the songs into a live setting. Mm-hmm. And then coming up soon, we have a handful of shows where we're going to hopefully figure out how to really do this, you know.
RF Shannon will take the Texas Monthly Main Stage at 1.30 p.m. on Saturday, November 4th, during Barbecue Fest. Hey folks, Emily here from Wella, a local family-owned business right here in Lockhart, Texas. We make everyday foods you love, like Thunderbird, Superfood, Energy Bars, and our Wella hot cereal, and more, with only clean ingredients and amazing flavors. You can find us at HEB, Central Market, Whole Foods, Good Things on the Lockhart Square, as well as thunderbirdbar.com, wellafoods.com, and Amazon. Hi, I don't know if you're aware that we're throwing a celebration of specialness. It's also a celebration of tastiness. In 1986, David Byrne made a movie about a bunch of people living in Virgil, Texas. The band Talking Heads even made a whole album about it. In the movie, they have a celebration of specialness. I thought it would be cool to have our own celebration of specialness, except this one's kind of real. It's a celebration of what makes Lockhart special in the first place. Smoky Meats. They're going to have a variety show about meat? How do you do that? But in recent years, we've got something else that makes us special. Like musicians. Like Mitch. Hey, now. Hey, Dustin. Hey, Steve. So we were fortunate enough to partner with Texas Monthly to kick off Barbecue Fest. So what started as a celebration of specialness became a celebration of tastiness. Happiness is an attribute or a quality. Messiness is an attribute. But it's a description of a state. Lockhart has all kinds of characters that live in it. A lot of them we feature on the podcast that we run. Some of them are real, and some of them aren't. I knew traffic. That you're up there in a helicopter looking down, knowing, knowing where everybody's going. I ain't gonna lie either, you know. I, I made a little money on the side doing a little PI work. I mean, we all know I've got a little bit of ADHD. It's just a little touch. I'm here, you gotta see some things up here. Oh, Mr. This vase, it has a terrific story. Let me just show you. know, I really resent the hell out of the fact that people use the word chicken to mean afraid. Let me tell you what, you crawl into a chicken coop with a horny rooster and see who runs for the door. In addition to the characters you've just seen, we're also gonna feature several songwriters and musicians from the podcast. And it's all happening live, November 3rd, as a part of what we like to call A Smoky So, the phone rings, the day with the White House, and I'm like, oh, crap, Big Jim wants money. And I'm like, okay, Jim, what's up? And he goes, excuse me? It was a lady. I said, I'm sorry, ma'am, I thought you were a friend that was calling from the White House, and he says, excuse me, but are you David Torres? David A. Torres? I said, yes, ma'am. All right, we're calling to verify the value of the president's hat to put in the archives, and we need to verify. And I said, yes, ma'am. And I told her the price and everything. And she goes, okay. And then she goes, excuse me, but you said Jim, and I need to make sure there's nothing left unturned on this conversation. You thought I was Big Jim. What does that mean? And she goes, is there something I need to know of? Because this is a president. And I'm like, well, let me tell you, street lingo, friends of ours call the White House. It really means the penitentiary. And she goes, so you're saying street lingo out there 
is called the White House really means sometimes the penitentiary. And I said, yeah, because the building's painted white. And she goes, hey, hey, hey. Well, okay, well, I just needed to verify and clear the air because the whole group family of Texas Hatters has security clearance and y'all have all been checked out. Come on down to Texas Hatters where we top the best. Just a reminder that our lineup is featured on our Instagram page and daily in our stories called The Roundup. If you want to know what's going on in town tonight, check out 78644podcast on Instagram. It's also the place to find out when our next episode is out. We want to remind folks about our 78644 Friends program. What are 78644 Friends? Well, they are super fans who believe that supporting musicians goes beyond just attending shows. It's about ensuring their return by tipping the band. To address the disparity musicians face in earning a living in today's world, we've initiated a program where you can make a monthly donation of $5 or more. And guess what? We will give 100% of your contribution back to the musicians who have played on our podcast. That's right, 100%. Supporting your favorite musicians has never been easier. Head over to 78644podcast.com, click the subscribe button, and sign up for $5 or more a month. It's the cost of just a couple of tacos. As a token of our gratitude, you'll be invited to exclusive 78644 hangs every month where exciting perks will await you. Past perks have included paying your cover at shows or offering a complimentary drink or gifting a swag bag to you. And that's not all. As a subscriber, you will receive a special link to a password protected playlist featuring all the original music from our show. This includes unreleased songs captured at the Troubadour Image and Sound Studio, and it's an opportunity to enjoy exclusive tracks all in one place. So don't miss out on the fun. Sign up today and secure your spot on the invite list and support the incredible musicians who bring their talent to our podcast. And remember, always tip the band. Your contribution makes a real difference in their lives. Hey, we want to share some important news. Local musician Sarah Barlow had a medical emergency and her left index finger is at risk of amputation. She needs $5,000 for a treatment that can save her finger. Daily treatments can help her avoid a prosthetic and get her back to performing by next year. You can donate on her GoFundMe at gf.me slash u slash 435ymq or follow her on Instagram at m-i-s-s-s-a-r-a-h-b-a-r-l-o-w. That's at Miss Sarah Barlow on Instagram for more information. Your support can make a big difference to her and her music career and her life. Thanks so much. Tuesday, October 31st is Happy Halloween. Old Pal will have Johnny Walker Field Trip Halloween Karaoke. That's a costume contest from 7 to 10 p.m. Wednesday, November 1st, All Souls Day. Best Little Wine will have Mr. Carter's Smooth Blues Corner from 6.30 to 9 p.m. The Pearl will have Stony Gable from 7 to 9 p.m. Friday, November 3rd, is the Texas Monthly Barbecue Fest kickoff and first Friday. We're kicking it off with a Smoky Home Compadre, a celebration of tastiness. It starts at 7 p.m. on the Texas Monthly Stage on the Square. Featured artists include myself, Stephen Collins. I'll be hosting the event and the 78644 Community Players, the house band, Jason Williams, Dustin Welsh, Hollyanna, Will Rhodes, Kara Bliss, Natalie Ribbons from Telenovela, K Maison, followed by James McMurtry, and a full set by him at 8.30 p.m. 
Late shows will be brought to you by Rachel Rhodes Presents, and that will be Jane Leo at Lockhart Arts and Crafts from 10 to 11.55 p.m. At the Pocket Park, the Fossils will be from 7 to 9 p.m. Kreitz's Market will have Jamie Kruger Band, 2 to 5 p.m. The Pearl will have Hillbilly National Band, 8 to 10 p.m. Duets will have Jonathan Tyler and Northern Lights with Hayden Redwine starting at 6 p.m. Martindale Cafe will have the movie screening of Stars at Night from 7 to 9 p.m. Saturday, November 4th, will be Texas Monthly Barbecue Fest. The Barbecue Fest lineup on the main stage will be DJ Island Time, welcomed by Sun Radio at 12 noon. 78644 Podcast presents Can You Smoke That? It's a culinary adventure in Roadkill, hosted by Vera Karp from Tuna, Texas at 12.30 p.m., followed by R.F. Shannon at 1.30 p.m. Then we'll have the 78644 Podcast Showcase featuring Mark Willenborg, Melissa Engelman, Rachel Lingvi, Richard Allen Platt, Chris Dye, plus myself, Stephen Collins, and the 78644 Players with some special guests. That'll be at 2.45 p.m., Rattlesnake Milk will perform at 4 p.m. 78644 Podcast will then present Can You Smoke That? A culinary adventure in Roadkill, hosted by Vera Karp from Tuna, Texas herself, followed by Tomar and the FCs at 6 p.m. Lockhart Arts and Craft will have a barbecue song swap with Halliana Finley, Kathleen O'Keefe, and Melissa Engelman at 6 to 8 p.m. The Pearl will have Bear Ryan with Bird Dog Eatery, at 11 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. Duets will have Brasco with Brennan Walter at 6 p.m. Martindale Cafe will have the Lonesome Heroes, Loose Screws, and Rusty Hearts, 7 to 9 p.m. Kreitz's Market will have Chris Cuevas from 12 to 3 p.m. Sunday, November 5th, Texas Monthly Barbecue Fest at City Park will be happening at 1 p.m. Well, welcome by Sun Radio. 1 to 3 p.m. will be Hardproof Horn Section performing live starting at 3 p.m to 4 p.m mixer rogers will be performing the pearl will have mandy rodden 3 to 5 p.m wednesday november 8th the pearl will have chris lancaster 7 to 9 p.m best little wine and books mr carter's smooth blues corner will be having that there at 6 30 to 9 p.m friday november 10th the pearl will have the jamie kruger band 8 to 10 p.m Duets will have The Drop Tones, 6 p.m. there. Lockhart Arts and Crafts, Alex Teller and Joey Frendo, 8 to 11 p.m. Martindale Cafe will have Defoy, 7 to 9 p.m. Saturday, November 11th, Martindale Cafe will have Caroline Parker from 7 to 9. Sunday, November 12th, The Pearl will have Sunday Blues Matinee with W.C. Clark, 3 to 5 p.m. Lockhart Arts and Crafts Irish Music Sessions will be taking place 4.30 to 8 p.m. Wednesday, November 15th, The Pearl will have Stony Gable, 7 to 9 p.m. Best Little Wine and Books will have Mr. Carter's Smooth Blues Corner from 6.30 to 9. Thursday, November 16th, The Pearl will have Open Mic with Michael James Trio. Sign-up starts at 6.30. The event's from 7 to 9. Duets will have Vandaliers with West Texas Exiles starting at 6 p.m. Friday, November 17th, The Pearl will have Tony Taylor, 8 to 10 p.m. Lockhart Arts and Crafts, Mags Baker and Pals, 8 to 10 p.m. Martindale Cafe will have Marco Felipe, 7 to 9 p.m. Saturday, November 18th, The Pearl will have Ruben's Birthday Bash with David Isley Band, 8 to 10 p.m. Martindale Cafe will have Cheer Up, Cheer Up, it's from 7 to 9 p.m. Sunday, November 19th, The Pearl will have Sunday Blues Matinee with W.C. Clark, that's 3 to 5 p.m. 
Wednesday, November 22nd. The Pearl will have Chris Lancaster, 7 to 9 p.m. Best Little Wine and Books, Mr. Carter's Smooth Blues Corner, 6.30 to 9 p.m. Friday, November 24th, The Pearl will have Michael James Trio, 8 to 10 p.m. Lockhart Arts and Craft will have Open Mic Night, sign-ups at 7 p.m. The event is from 8 to 11.30 p.m. Saturday, November 25th, duets will have Grady Spencer and the work with Matthew McNeil. That's at 6 p.m. Sunday, November 26th, The Pearl will have Sunday Blues Matinee with W.C. Clark, 3 to 5 p.m. Wednesday, November 29th, The Pearl will have Halliana Finley from 7 to 9 p.m. Also, we'd like to announce the album release for Sandlot Season 1. The album will be available in participating record stores here in Lockhart on November 2nd. And that's it for 78644 News. Jason Williams, an American humorist, playwright, actor, director, and novelist, is best known for co-authoring and acting in the Greater Tuna Quartet of Plays. These comedic plays are all set in the fictional town of Tuna, Texas, and include Greater Tuna, A Tuna Christmas, Red, White, and Tuna, and Tuna Does Vegas. In 1971, Williams left Texas Tech University and began his acting career in San Antonio, Texas, gaining a recognition through various theater companies. He's received accolades such as the L.A. Drama Log Award for Greater Tuna and A Tuna Christmas, and the Texas Governor's Award for Outstanding Contribution to the Arts by a Native Texan. His performances have graced Broadway, the Kennedy Center, the Edinburgh International Arts Festival, the Spoleto Festival United States, and other venues across America. Williams has also had the honor of performing at the White House and receiving the Austin Critics Table Award for Best Actor in a Drama. Jason will be bringing his many characters to the stage on the Smoky Home Compadre show on Friday at 7 p.m. on the Texas Monthly Main Stage, kicking off Barbecue Fest, as well as hosting Can You Smoke That?, a little game show where we explore smoking and grilling unlikely animals of Texas on Saturday on the maid stage at 5 p.m. Jason is also a contributor to the 78644 podcast in his sketch Tricks in the Kitchen, where he's invented a character called Annalisa Hinterkleiden, who has a little bit of jealousy with Julia Child. And uh, Jason came in to visit with us to talk about his career and working with us here on the show, and it was a real honor to have him. Yeah, what I basically do uh, or did with my career especially with the Greater Tuna shows. I just did everything my mother told me not to do as a child, not to do or say, and dressed up like her part of the time doing it. And, uh, boy, it worked. <laughs> it worked. And we, when we wrote the first Tuna show, we thought we would be working maybe for, at the most, for six months. And, well, we, were, we toured for nearly 40 years. Man, it's it just... It was a, something else. Yeah. It was a long... Yeah, it's a long time in high heels. It is a long <laughs> time in high heels. Yeah, and uh, it was. It's Joe was your your. Yeah, Joe was my writing and performing partner. Joe and I were, we were we we were successful because we successful because we knew each other so well, and uh, we had been best friends throughout the seventies. And you know, people talk about the sixties. The seventies were a gas. You know, I don't remember all of it, except that, you know, I, I rather enjoyed myself. 
And uh, Joe was kind of the same way. And uh, then the 70s ended, and I went, good Lord, i got to go to work. <laughs> and I talked him into, uh, I talked him into doing tuna. He, he wasn't that up for it. And I said, no, we can, we can pull this off. And, um, um, and I, I talk to Joe almost every day now. You know, we call each other and talk politics and use profanity and laugh and all of that. But, uh, yeah, I was working with your best friend all those years. It was something else. Did tuna start as just a, a just a small kind of play, or was yeah. it always? And then it became greater tuna. Yeah, bigger? just a little two-person show that we did in an eighty-seat house in uh, Austin, and I think we had twelve characters when we started, twelve, maybe fourteen. By the end of it all, we probably had thirty-five characters that were born and died. And, you know, the great thing about it is if you didn't like a character, you, we were the writers, we could kill them. We did. We killed off a couple of them, and we we had one preacher that we didn't like. We sent him to prison. <laughs> and it was, uh, but, yeah, uh, we, we started in Austin, and um, a couple of New York critics were, uh, theater critics were friends with Gary P. Nunn, and they came to Texas to hear country music. And Gary insisted that they come see Greater Tuna. And it, it changed our lives in about a week. Really? It was that fast. Once once you had a rave review in New York Variety, uh, it was amazing. It happened that quickly. You went into, you did a television production of it we too with HBO, HBO, right? HBO version uh, with Norman Lear. That was um, a whole lot of fun, but our our interest was always on stage, or stage actors. You know, I, it's not that I don't like I don't like being on camera, but we were stage actors. That's what you know. You're only as good as your last show, right. and uh, in our business, that's uh, that's where the real pros are. So, you, you, while you were doing this, it's based on your kind of experiences in West Texas where you came from, right? Well, some of it was. Some of it was taking on censorship. I mean, that was the initial uh, idea behind creating these characters, uh, people who wanted to ban books and words and and films and music. You know, uh, we had a character, the uh, Leonard, who said, now bring your rock and roll, come on out and burn it. And we're going to have a rock and roll burning next week over at the football field. Leave your buddy Holly and Elvis at home. They were good Southern boys. They will be forgiven by a higher power than us. But bring your rock and roll and come on out and burn it. Of course, I don't read much, you know, at all. Forty years ago, we were satire. Now we're in Congress. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's like it's it, censorship is. It's. I think Johnny Rotten said it a couple of maybe a year oh. ago, saying like, "I never thought I'd see the rock and rollers tell you say, telling everybody to do what the government told them to do." Oh. Oh, oh. It's, again, it's really hard being a satirist. Yeah, because you, the things that people say are so so stupid to begin with. Where do you go? Yeah, and you told me that 
recently when we were doing something, uh, a, a sketch together in here, that you were starting to teach a course on satire. Yes, I am. I'm going to be, um, I went to Texas Tech, guns up, God bless them. I'm going to be going back to Tech this spring to teach a class on uh, playwriting and on satire because satire is, it's hard to find. Yeah, it is. You know, and we have a we have a younger generation that God bless them have grown up in this alternative reality, uh, and they they don't understand satire. It's just stuff stuff they hear people say, you know, on on C-SPAN. Yeah, you know, and uh, so <laughs> they, we, and they we, don't get they don't actually understand it. No, yeah. no, they don't. And it's um, you know we've got to do what we can to bring it back. I always think of you know. One of my favorite groups of satirists were the Monty Python boys. Oh, yeah. They were crazy. They were crazy as they could be. And they'd drop their clothes and run down the street. I mean, it didn't stop with the jokes. You know, they yeah. were, uh, and they made me laugh and they made me think. A lot of tuna had that crazy Monty Python stuff to it. It was just done with uh, West Texas. And the other thing we did do with our characters is that we showed it. We we tried to show affection to all the characters we played, even when we totally disagreed with them. Yeah, you know, uh, I don't. I don't think satire is uh, intentional cruelty. Is satire, or it's not good satire. You know, I agree. Uh, yeah, the character that Joe played, Bertha, who was a book banner deluxe, uh, but she was also a very. She was a good wife and a concerned mother, and. And uh, kind of a delightful personality, you know, uh, but she was also out trying to, you know, ban every book she could get her hands on down to Shakespeare. You <laughs> and, know. and now, yeah, it's, it's. And now it's happening. It's happening. It's happening. Yeah. Go to a school board meeting. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fascinating because I feel like satire plays the role. Like Jonathan Swift, oh yeah, you know, and it's like it's always been where you ever wherever you have a free country, you've got to have the satirist to to poke, poke you in the eye a little bit, to mostly so you don't take yourself so seriously. So, and it's they're, still coming, big, after, they're still coming thing. after Jonathan Swift, you know, centuries later. It, that's the important thing I think to remember is that. If one section can get banned, the other can get banned, and then, oh. then all of it eventually oh, is, is banned. And know? so it, we do have to, you know, the freedom of speech and of, and of expression is such a powerful, powerful needed thing for us to have a, a, a place to live where we can all breathe and live together. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Which brings us to what, you know, part of what we're be, being able to do together, and, and I want to get to that in a minute, but first of all, I want to talk about what what brought you to Lockhart? Uh, <laughs> I drove over uh, one Saturday, or actually it was a Monday, it was Labor Day. Uh, we had friends over here that were doing a hamburger cookout, and we drove over to get a hamburger and ended up buying a house. <laughs> and it really was that crazy. There was a realtor there uh, that uh, said, I want to show you this house, and I said, we're not looking to live in Lockhart. And he said, well, you need to see this house. And it, it was, it is an incredible house. It's an architectural masterpiece from the 1950s. It looks like it was lifted off a, a, a hill in Palm Springs and put down in Lockhart. We immediately fell in love with it and it was falling down in some senses. And we decided to make that our project and thought it would be a great place to raise a kid. And uh, so that's what we did. And I, I've lived in some cool places in my life, but 
but my home in Lockhart is as good as it's ever gotten. Yeah, I love that that mid-century Palm Springs thing. Mid-century, yeah, Palm Springs, yeah, yeah, swivel chairs and uh, shades of turquoise, and and also we had we had a whole lot of art. I used to. I used to refer to these as art attacks. I would see a piece of art and have to have it. And so we had art in storage. Oh, yeah. And when we saw the walls of this house, it was like, no, it's begging us. And the and the other thing, too, was we were afraid somebody would buy the lot and tear down the house. And the house is too wonderful to be torn down. So Yeah, yeah. Do so, you know who the architect is? Just curious. Yeah, Farron Granger out of Austin. They were acolytes of Richard Neutra on the West Coast. Uh, and they built uh, they built the old Mueller Airport. Oh wow! Uh, but uh, they they built amazing homes all over Central Texas. It looks yeah, it's very unique for Lockhart and for Central Texas too. Yeah. You know, so you you came here and then um we had had met and um uh, finally got a chance to do some work together here on this show by creating characters. That's yep. in the in the vein of what you do best, yeah. which is satirical writing and yep. character creation. Yep. And um, where we brought in Annalisa Hinterclyden. Annalisa Hinterclyden. <laughs> yeah, she, she, she has a food network. Yeah. <laughs> slap that chicken. Check a ch- chicken for freshness. You just walk up and slap the hell out of it. If it slaps you back, it's too fresh. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And that's been fun to see her come to life. Yeah, then, she's she's a case. And then um, kind of bringing back some of the classic characters for this, I guess, big party we're throwing called the Smoky Home Compadre. Yes. We, I remember saying, now we're going to do this thing. What do you think? And you were like, let's 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 try it, you know? That's it. No, it sounds like a whole lot of fun. And one thing about Lockhart that I do love, there has been a, a pilgrimage to Lockhart of some awfully cool people, and it's not that there weren't cool people here to begin with, but um, a lot of people that decided they didn't want to put up with Austin, specifically South Austin, didn't want to deal with the traffic, didn't want to deal with all that, and great artists and musicians. Uh, um, James McMurtry and I are going to be appearing on stage together. We haven't decided what we're going to do, but we know it's going to be controversial. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can count on that. <laughs> Get people talking. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's, you know, James has been here for several years now. That says a lot about the community. We have amazing painters and artists and musicians. There's a, a wonderful music scene here. There's more and more of a food scene here. You know, now I know we're supporting barbecue here, but you don't, but we have choices. Yeah. Now, uh, which there didn't used to be. No. And, um, you know, it used to be barbecue and bad pizza. Yeah, and Mexican food. That's about it. And Mexican food. You know, so no, I think I've landed in Lockhart and I think. You know, they're just going to have to put up with me. <laughs> well, it's been it's 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 fun getting a chance to to bring new characters to life, and then I'm excited about seeing some of the old ones come to life and yeah. here in Lockhart and uh, and seeing what transpires. Because doing this show, it's like I remember talking to Kate about it, being like, Texas Monthly was wanted us to curate the music because we had been doing it this show for a while for a year, and I was like, well, let's let's do like a a thing like let's yeah. bring some some of these characters that live here yeah. to life and i think yeah. that's one of them and, and bring them to the stage because yeah. they've been making an appearance on the show 
And that's one of the things we wanted for the show was something that was kind of like Garrison Keeler, but for yeah. where we live here, yeah. you know. And yeah. it's been fun to do that here in the studio, but to bring them to the stage is is uh, is well, is and it's pretty fun. It's, yeah. it's cooling off, and and people will be able to come outside again, you know, <laughs> yeah. and enjoy enjoy the outdoors, which I parted company with somewhere in August. Oh my gosh, you know, and yeah. I'm, I'm still upset about it. I'm still, I feel nature just stabbed me in the back. I feel and the same I'm way. not going to get over it anytime soon. Uh, but by that time of the year, it's going to be cooled off. It's going to be wonderful. James is going to play. I've got phone calls into a couple of tuna characters, uh, Vera Carp and Dee Dee Snavely. They don't like each other, but one of them will show up, <laughs> you know, so one of them will be up there on that stage. And uh, uh, and it'll be great because I haven't, I haven't played a tuna character in a decade. I haven't brought them out in over a decade. Oh, that's really so special. So it'll be man. fun to, to bring them out. Oh man, it's an honor to have, to have you do it here on this uh, with us and oh, uh, on the stage here in Lockhart. It's so going to be wonderful. Yeah. It'll be a celebration of specialness. Yes, <laughs> yes. Again, anything I can do, y'all come on down to Lockhart because it it's a little crazy. It's it's <laughs> not what you might remember. We'd like to thank our Smoky Home Compadre and Barbecue Fest sponsors, Texas Monthly. Original Black's Barbecue, Wella Foods, Thunderbird Bars, Commerce Gallery, Poco Loco Supermercado, the Lockhart Downtown Business Association, Independence Brewing Company, and Garrison Brothers Distillery. Along with our monthly sponsors, Texas Hatters, Wella Foods, Thunderbird Bars, Wendy R. Bookery and Gifts, Christina Valdez, Realtor for his own team, Really Austin, and Viva Trilingua, the Big Bang of Texas Music Exhibit at the Whitliff Collections at Texas State University. In-kind sponsors are Printing Solutions, Williams Island, Courthouse Nights, The Rock House Airbnb, Birdie House Airbnb, Gaslight Baker Theater, and Crystal Glaze Photography. Our show is produced by Kate Collins, recorded at Troubadour Image and Sound in Lockhart, Texas, edited by myself, Stephen Collins, and Danny Manning. Social media managed by Crystal Glaze. 78644 is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, Radio Public, and everywhere else where podcasts are streamed. Thanks for listening. Don't eat too much at Barbecue Fest. <laughs> <laughs>